0: Okay, let's have a prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for your word, which we uh, steady and try to follow the best of our ability. And we have a couple people we want to bring forward to Eddie and his safety on his travels, and, and Deb Johnson, that all may go well with her upcoming heart surgery. We know there's many others within the congregation that need your comfort and healing, and we just pray that uh, you would uh, be there for them and help us in any way we can to encourage them in their troubles right now. We just want to honor you and praise you and thank you for your abundant blessings continually, even though we don't deserve them. We just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's see. i got to... Got to go to a specific slide here, slide 38. Oops. I can get there. Yeah, down arrow. Oh, that's, that's great if you can see it.
1: Keep going,
0: two more. I need to go to slide 38. Help. Man, do you help if I could see? Okay, a review from last week. <clears throat> uh, millennial, millennialism is the idea that Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years, and often considered apocalyptic. That means uh, some supernatural or and or cataclysmic event would happen to bring it to fruition. Uh, forms of millennialism have existed since before Christ. We talked about the Jews and in other religions as well uh, most of the major <coughs> religions for that matter and we saw that there were four current uh, views today two pre-millennialist uh, ideas one was dispensational and the other one was historic and we'll talk more about the historic one where that came from today and then as uh, larry pointed out and kathy there's been some history of different millennial views in Church of Christ history. Uh, some of that goes back a long ways. I mean, Robert Bolle, his preeminence in teaching that kind of thing was over a hundred years ago. But and then uh, uh, Alexander Campbell back in the 1800s. Uh, so let's see. And then we read the scripture. It says Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, but that hasn't stopped people throughout the ages from predicting a date and being wrong about it. Oh, there's Larry. I was looking back there. Why don't you sit in the same chair every <laughs> Confusing me. Okay. Oh, I see better. Okay. <laughs> and um, we looked at some za- examples where many people have died over this idea. 20 million in China. Uh, a million Jews. Uh, 918 in Ju- uh, Guyana. So we ended up with where did this idea come from? Okay, so here's the scripture, Revelation 20, 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. These did not worship the beast or his image and had refused to receive his mark on their forehead or hand. <clears throat> they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those red letters are mine. Those aren't what Jesus said. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, although... We believe the book of Revelation was inspired of God, but uh, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is basically what the different millennial views are based on throughout time. There's a lot more scriptures, but this is the main one. Oops, hit the wrong button. And we all know Mark 16 says, he who believes and is baptized and has the right view on millennialism shall be saved. (laughs) Just get that out of the way before we get in here. Okay, so during the first hundred years of the church, uh, they taught some form of millennialism. The perusia, which is the second coming of Christ, would bring about a thousand-year kingdom of fellowship, justice, peace, and abundance here on earth. And there's a good article. If you you download this, Scott puts this on the church website. And if you download it, then you can click on these links and see good articles about this. But I summarized it on the next slide. Um, Historians in this article quote many church fathers and say that premillennialism was the dominant view of the early church was part of the proclamation of the gospel see I told you Mark 16. Uh, They state that the early Christians believed in an impending last terrible battle with the enemies of God in the speedy return of Christ it's always imminent we should live like that I think Christ will judge all men Christ will set up a kingdom of glory on earth of fixed duration most prevalently, they stuck with the 1,000 years, which makes sense after reading Revelation. They also say that Justin Martyr, who had been saved out of pagan Greek philosophy, like a lot of first-century Christians, uh, speaks of millennialism as a necessary part of complete orthodoxy, although he knows Christians who do not accept it, and is the strongest proof that those, uh, these expectations were inseparably bound with the Christian faith down to the middle of the second century. So some form of premillennialism, according to these historians, historians uh, quoting the church fathers, church fathers, um, <clears throat> Roman persecutions triggered millennial excitement. You know, you're being thrown to the lions. Uh, you want that thousand years of peace and Jesus reigning and you know, abundance. Uh, but as we just read, martyrdom, those beheaded uh, for for the Word and the Gospel, uh, and millennial promises that Jesus would reign for a thousand years on earth are uh, two aspects of that. those verses we just read. Apocalyptic zeal waned for periods because the end never came, and the pressure of persecution was intermittent. Ah, words of inspiration. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I love babies. I don't ever change their diapers, but I love babies. they <laughs> <Dear> mother. <laughs> Large numbers of Roman citizens were converted to Christianity and their worldly success and the failure of apocalyptic expectation reduced Christian antagonism towards the empire. So you, people make the predictions even though the Bible says Jesus doesn't even know. They calculate all these things, set a date, doesn't come true get egg in your face. At least the the Christian clerics would have egg on their face probably. Millennial thought lost favor with the clerical elite. It remained popular and appealed to the Montanists and other heretics. They were officially declared heretics. I just didn't put that in there, but Montanus was the founder of this group. He began the movement just by preaching. He was originally a pagan priest He was excommunicated by the church and declared a heretic. And this was in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And he had two female prophets with him and believed that the end was at hand. So what do you do with Montanism? Well, you discredit him by calling him a heretic. But he divided history into the time of the Father. That's from creation to when Jesus died on the cross, the time of the Son, beginning of the church, or Jesus dying on the cross, and and then uh, after he ascended to heaven, then the time of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. This is kind of a forerunner of modern day dispensationalism, I think, dividing history into these different types of periods for his own purposes. And uh, Frigia, which is now in Turkey, there's a map, you can see where it is approximately, became the center of this movement whose leaders claimed divine inspiration for their visions and utterances and believed in the imminent descent of the heavenly Jerusalem to the small Phrygian town of Pepuza. Of all places, why would they pick Phrygia? Well, I noticed in Acts 2.10, Phrygia is one of the places where the people were from on the day of Pentecost. So, you know, they may have heard the gospel, went back to Phrygia, Uh, spread the good word, and in Acts 16 and 18, Paul is mentioned as going through the land of Phrygia. I actually looked that up to see how to pronounce it. They all said Phrygia. I wouldn't have said that, but that's how they pronounce it. So, the heavenly uh, Jerusalem is going to descend on this place here, of all places in the world, for some reason. And about AD 200, the apocalyptic expectations reached unusual levels. Montanism spread throughout the Roman Empire, including Tertullian, a North African lawyer and theologian. Uh, There's an interesting, I like this quote here, that's why I put this thing on there. He said, he who lives only to benefit himself confers on the world a benefit when he dies. (laughs) Um, Now this guy was smart, and he believed in this montanism, that Jesus was going to, or the heavenly city was going to descend on Phrygia at a certain point in time. So we know that didn't, I don't think it happened. We missed it if it did. The apocalyptic prophets uh, roused their flocks with visions of the imminent end and led them to the desert to uh, meet Christ returning on the clouds. That would never happen today. Oh, yes, it would. I know in my own lifetime it did didn't? when I was living in Little Rock. A bunch of people that decided Jesus was going to return, they went and got this land just east of Little Rock, and they took all their families and created a commune, and they're waiting for the return of the Lord on a specific date, I forget which one it was, in the (coughs) mid-70s, after three months, the state went in there and took their kids, because they weren't going to school, and forced them to uh, school, and then one by one, they all, well, kids are leaving, I guess we're gonna leave, and when the date came and passed, they all left, but stuff like that happens. So what do we do about this kind of stuff, Montanism, where they predict is, that Jesus is gonna return on a specific date and uh, take all their followers out into the desert and they sell their stuff, And you know, who knows? Well, they came up with three different ideas. They, who's they? You know, church leaders, church fathers, church clerics, you know, the people in charge. Um, in the epistle of Barnabas, which was written in 110 AD, Uh, It was held that because God had created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, and because a thousand years is a day in God's sight, the world must labor 6,000 years before the sabbatical millennium of peace, abundance, and joyful rest for the Lord's weary uh, would begin. Begs the question, when was the world created? 6,000 years from creation, then the millennium is going to begin. It's called the sabbatical millennium. Very clever idea. Well, here's, here's the three verses in Barnabas. <clears throat> of the Sabbath, he speaketh in the beginning of the creation, and God made the works of his hands in six days, and he ended on the seventh day, and rested on it, and he hallowed it. Give heed, children, what this meaneth. In 110 A.D., they spoke King with English, <laughs> you realize He ended in six days, he meaneth this, that in six thousand years the Lord shall bring all things to an end, for the day with him signifieth a thousand years, and this he himself beareth me witness, saying, Behold, the day of the Lord shall be as a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is six thousand years, everything shall come to an end. (coughs) And he rested on the seventh day. This he meaneth, when his son shall come, and shall abolish the time of the lawless one. At, you know, quoting from Thessalonians, and shall judge the ungodly, and shall change the sun and the moon and the stars, then shall he truly rest on the seventh day. Well, this was never accepted into the canon. Um, and It was really an interpretation of Jewish scriptures by Christian beliefs. But quite a few of the church fathers quoted this guy, Eusebius. you probably heard probably heard that name. So, when was the world created? Well, here comes Hippolytus. Because of the irresponsible apocalypticism, ap- apocalypticism everybody say that, apocalypticism, <laughs> say it fast, uh, of his day, connected the sabbatical millennium to a specific date. Now, how he did this, I don't know, but by dating Jesus' birth to 5500 Anamundi, which is the year of the war, uh, world, um, he argue, argued in 57 a.m., which was A.D. 200, we see he died in 235 over in the picture, uh, that there were still 300 years left before the Perugia. Whew. This reaffirmed the millennia, millennialism as dogma and offered a concrete date. For at least two centuries, his teachings offered a solution to the problem of apocalyptic millennialism. So, Kick the can down the road, it's not coming anytime soon. It's gonna be in the year 500, right? Because he said this in AD 200, he figured out the earth was created uh, 5,500 years before the birth of Christ. I don't know how he figured that out, but uh, it's not gonna come for 300 years. So that's one solution to Montanism and those kinds of people that take their flock out in the desert and expect Jesus to return. The second idea that was proposed, uh, the thousand-year reign was not physical, but spiritual. Greek thought influenced uh, Christian theology. (gasps) I can't believe the dominant culture would affect Christian teaching. Can you? (laughs) Well, it's unheard of, yes. Uh, The Greeks had a unique idea about the soul. It was the most important thing. Uh, Body, soul, and spirit, no, the soul. It was the most important thing. Everything was attributed to the soul. The soul was immortal. Anyway, a lot of this Greek philosophy entered early Christian church, and in my opinion. I don't know about you, Phil. I think some of it's still there. You went like this a little bit. Anyway. Origen, the great 3rd century Alexandrian Christian thinker, emphasized the manifestation of the kingdom in the soul of the believer rather than in in the world. A significant shift toward the spiritual. Hmm, that's very interesting. Origen may have been the origin of the spiritual millennium. And then the third idea that was proposed, remember they're they're living in Rome. Rome is the, as far as they know, the known world is controls everything. They're in charge of everything. It's way more important to them than the US is to us today, I think. But the association of apocalyptic millennialism with the Montanist heresy and other troubling anti-authoritarian beliefs and practices discredited it we talked about this last week. A lot of these movements were anti-authoritarian. They were a threat to the hierarchy and leadership of the church. It's almost like Jesus threatening the Pharisees, you know, with this new thing. It's going to take take the Pharisees' uh, titles and positions, throw them out. But um, especially among the clerical supporters of the monarchical episcopy, you can just put the word in bishops. By that time... They had a monarchal you know, structure, a hierarchical structure, where the bishop in a local area was all powerful, basically, as far as the church was concerned. Um, and they laid the of fa- the groundwork for this revolutionary notion in Christianity of a sacred empire. So, one a sabbatical millennium, putting it off for another 300 years. Two, it's not going to be a real physical millennium. It's going to be in your heart, in your soul. Or three, the millennium is already here. It's the Roman Empire. It's providing all this peace and abundance. Well, let's go to the next slide. This third idea became even more plausible with the conversion of Constantine the Great, uh, the emperor, and the adoption of Christianity as the favored and eventually sole religion of the empire. And I see, I can see a beginning of uh, post-millennialism, where the world is getting better and better and turning to Christ in mass. And the Roman Empire, the known world at that time, because of an edict by the Christian emperor, everything was becoming more and more Christian That's a, and getting better and better. And then after that time, Christ is gonna come. That's the definition of post-millennialism, really. <laughs> The Pax Romana Christiana, you've all heard of that, right? A uh, peace of the Christian Roman Empire was associated with Isaiah's vision of the peace of the nations. They will beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So Rome became the fulfillment of the millennial kingdom. It was a physical uh, kingdom, and it was Rome. So there's three ideas to try to thwart this continual heretics, having all these people follow them up to the desert, expecting Jesus to return on a specific date, and then it never happens. <clears throat> Which one do you want to take? <laughs> Which idea do you like? Well, I don't know if we are uh, we're, uh, we need to take one of those three. That's what they, they came up with. They, the church, basically, and the church fathers, the Christian thinkers of the time. <clears throat> anyway, they believed Rome's dominion kept the Antichrist at bay. As it says in Second Thessalonians, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So, Rome <coughs> and the... Christian emperor and the Christian edicts coming forth from the emperor that's going to keep the Antichrist bay. And you've heard the expression eternal Rome. It uh, became a symbol of the longevity of the new millennial kingdom. They figured as powerful as Rome was, it would last forever and ever. Of course, we know that God creates nations and sets their boundaries of time and stuff. Um, empires don't last forever. <clears throat> but they didn't know that when they were living living then. Just as God rules over all in heaven, so the emperor rules on earth. Did anyone see this coming? Uh, when an earthly empire becomes the manifestation of the reign of Christ, Christianity slowly absorbs pieces of that culture. So in the fourth and fifth centuries, imperial Christianity absorbed the messianic symbols of pagan Rome. <clears throat> I put this link in there if you have any interest you can go out there and you can see all the symbols that were adopted by the Christian church in the 4th and 5th century that came straight from sun worshipping and various pagan practices. Uh, there's pictures in there galore. We don't have time to look at all that stuff. And as I was looking at, at them, I was thinking, that's exactly right. I saw a bunch of that. Earlier this year, Was in went to several cathedrals in Portugal and london and all of that gaudy stuff with all those symbols is right there of course i took some of those pictures from the places that i'd seen earlier this year <clears throat> um, so yeah equating a political basically empire with the reign of christ we take on that culture Probably not a good idea anyway But, despite these three ideas to get rid of this stuff, uh, which which the church thought was heretical, the church hierarchy or leadership, um, popular uh, millennialism wasn't dead and emerged in groups like the North African Donatists. The leader was Donatus. I couldn't find anything that said when he was born, but he died, and everybody knew he died in 355 AD. But... He belonged to the tradition of early Christianity that produced the Montanists, the Novationists, the movements in Asia Minor, and the Miletians in Egypt. If you look up those those people, not only were they millennialists expecting an apocalyptic cataclysmic event and the coming of Christ at a certain time, but interesting, in both those two later ones, uh, they had this uh, teaching that Christians that renounced their faith during persecution were not going to be allowed back into the church. The church could not forgive them. Uh, They said, God might be able to forgive them, but we are not going to forgive them, and we're not going to let them back into the church. Very interesting. Their goal was martyrdom following a life of penance. They survived Roman, Vandal, and Byzantine rulers until the extinction of Christianity in North Africa in the early European Middle Ages by Muslim, Islam, yeah. Now, in the Eastern Church, that was a little bit different. Uh, They didn't really have any of these millennial beliefs, number one, because they didn't accept the Book of Revelation into their canon until the... 5th century. So they didn't didn't really accept this. And they read through the their Bible, their canon, every year during the liturgical services, and they never read the book of Revelation because they didn't accept it. It wasn't sometime in the 400s when the canon kind of synced up with the canon of the Western Church. And uh, Clement and Origen, as we already talked about before, disliked the literalism of millennialism, and promoted promoted a more spiritual uh, christianity and to this day the eastern orthodox church for the most part is a millennialist <clears throat> they believe in more of a spiritual mo- millennialism kind <clears throat> of interesting okay so here comes augustine one of the great thinkers doctors of the church That's my last point. In Roman Catholicism, he is formally recognized as a doctor of the church, one of the few. Because a lot of his thinking uh, was uh, brought into the Catholic church or the the church at that time and had propagated all the way down to Protestantism and in the Catholic church all the way down to 2023. That's this year. (laughs) Well, he was a bishop of, of Hippo, which is in Algeria right now. But um, His two major books, The Confessions and mainly The City of God, which shows when they were written. I think he died at like 430. Uh, helped lay the foundation for much of medieval and modern Christian thought on a lot of ideas. And there's a picture by Botticelli. I remember Botticelli from Art Appreciation in College. Because in order to remember pictures, you know, there was Venus coming out of that shell. How do you remember who painted that? We came up with little things like, Lots of Belly by Botticelli. You know, <laughs> and I got an A on the test <laughs> just by coming up with stupid stuff like that. <laughs> but 20 years before Augustine died, a catastrophic event shocked the world. Rome was sacked by the Goths and Visigoths from the north in 410 AD. The Goths and the Visigoths were from German, or originally some of them from Scandinavia. They were the barbarians. No one ever believed that Rome would fall, but it was sacked, and it did. Now, what do you think that would do to that number three idea that the Roman Empire was the physical manifestation of the reign of Christ? You think that went out the window? I think the number three idea probably went out the window. I put this in here, similarities to Alexander Campbell. Well, we're going to, after Kathy and Larry, what they said last week, I'm going to do some more on the history of millennialism in the Churches of Christ um, last week of August, last Wednesday of August. But here's a little preview. Alexander Campbell was born in 1788, he died in 1866. He had that millennial harbinger. His idea was to get all Christians to unite, go back to the Bible, speak where it speaks and don't speak where it doesn't speak. And if we do this, you know, all Christians unite and we're going to make a Christian country, a Christian world, everything's going to be great. And then at the end of that time somewhere, uh, Christ would return. He was a post-millennialist. But do you remember the date I said when he died? 1866. What happened right before 1866? Civil War, 1861, 1865. I quiz my grandson on this all these dates every time we're together. Okay, when was World War One? When was World War When was the Silver War? (laughs) Well, first a few times. Well, I don't know. Now I think he's he's remembering. But at the end of Alexander Campbell's life. Because of the Civil War, I mean, 600,000 people, men were killed in that war. That was a huge percentage of the current population. His idea of uh, post-millennialism kind of went, he was extremely discouraged because of the Civil War, and right after the Civil War he died. But (coughs) same thing here. They put all their hope and trust in the reign of Christ for a 1,000 years and the eternal Rome Empire, and then... Somebody has the nerve to come down and sack it and blow our whole world up. This is really funny. A funny way to, I, quoting this guy. <clears throat> the pagans blame the Christians. Within a few decades, these Christians had gained the political power of the emperorship. Rome's centuries of pagan gods were then officially abandoned by the government. Now these Christians had messed up everything. They had to put a bunch of Bible thumping idiots into power offending our pagan and moral sensitivities and leaving the empire vulnerable to their northern enemies. The once great empire was now at the verge of total collapse. No thanks to these Bible thumpers. These Christians are to blame for our troubles. I thought this was kind of interesting. I can just see those Christians running around there with their NIVs, thumping their NIVs. That's the new Italian version, not the new international version. (laughs) Wait a second. Most people didn't have any Bibles. Where are they getting all this stuff? The the church fathers and the people that were the <laughs> theologians and thinkers, they congregated around great libraries like Alexan- in Alexandria and Vatican, places like that, where they could actually study copies of the Bibles. The rest of the people, they didn't have any copies of the Bible. They just had to take whatever the bishop said. They don't, they don't know. Most, some of them couldn't read anyway, or maybe most of them. It's kind of kind of interesting. <coughs> They, they equated the Goths and the Visigoths <clears throat> with Gog and Magog in revelation. And you probably remember, uh, right before the Iraq war, there was a story came out in the biography of George Bush. When he talked to Jacques Chirac, you remember the prime minister during that time of France, trying to get him to join in, in the Iraq War, he said, "Gog and Magog are at work in the Middle East. You've got to help us." when he was gathering up the coalition to go in there and take out Saddam Hussein. Well, Gog and Magog, they don't know it, but it's really Russia and China. (laughs) I learned that from various sources. Josh McDowell might have been one of them, but they thought it was the Goths and the Visigoths. Most Christians could not respond to these charges and so became the perfect scapegoat for Rome's collapse. However, Augustine, in his monumental work, City of God, laid the blame for Rome's troubles on the moral and ethical decline that had plagued pagan Roman culture for centuries. From what I've read, I think he's probably got something. The, The ethical and moral decline of Rome caused their downfall, not the Christians'. But Augustine, in his early life, he believed in the uh, premillennialism. He believed in the future of a physical thousand-year reign of Jesus, following uh, Christ's second coming. And this was the first reference to historical millennialism. <clears throat> it wasn't a diagram I showed you last week, uh, because the main difference is there was no belief in a complete fulfillment of the Abrahamic uh, land promise to national ethnic. Israel, mainly due to Justus Martyr's teaching, that the early reign of Christ would involve mostly Gentile Christian believers, since the Jews had been punished by God for their unbelief through the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 A.D. Of course, back then they knew nothing about the restoration of, you know, the nation of Israel in 1948. But uh, there, there was no in the original historic premillennialism. There was no expectation that the Jews would come back together and the temple rebuilt and the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff would would happen. Even though Origen and Clement of Alexandria and even Augustine's contemporary, Jerome, believed the uh, thousand-year reign was allegorical or spiritual, Augustine still believed in the thousand-year earthly reign of Christ. But eventually... For various reasons, which we'll look at, Augustine came to believe that many Christians had misinterpreted the meaning of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, described in the passage we just read. Augustine appeared to have gone liberal, flip-flopped, and changed his mind. But why? Well, there's a couple main reasons. Many Christians believe that the sack of Rome was a fulfillment of prophecy which would immediately bring about the literal millennium. And he hated that idea, couldn't stand that idea. It was tied to the success of the Roman Empire, because he lived during the sack. He died in 430, and he lived during the sack of Rome, and you know everybody's hopes and and wealth and everything. And he hated this too, and he called this idea of of a terrible carnal uh, belief that uh, made Christianity look bad, anyway. Some taught that the Christians during the millennium would enjoy carnal delights similar to what many Islamic jihadists believe today, that if you fly planes in the skyscrapers, then God will reward you with a harem in the next life. That was taught by some Christians. And uh, he, he thought that was an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. He believed scripture should be taken literally as possible, but he would forego his literalism if such literalism was leading towards tarnishing the reputation of the gospel. Everything I can read, this guy was trying to do his best. He was one of the best thinkers, Christian, early Christian thinkers, uh, to, to uh, promote the gospel and to, to save the hordes, <laughs> whoever the hordes may be. <coughs> A righteous guy. (laughs) Anyway he came in contact with Tychonius who was kind of a renegade Bible teacher but an extremely smart guy. He came up with the idea of the binding of Satan in Revelation 22 and 3. Um, He said it wasn't at Christ's second coming but rather his first coming. Christ bound Satan at his work on the cross in the first century AD and at the very beginning of the Millennium. Kind of a revolutionary idea. Anyway, Satan's influence was not fully eliminated, but his power was greatly restrained, restrained, at least until he would later be released towards the end of this millennium. So what he's looking at is in Revelation 20, it says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while." So, different way of thinking than what was thought of by the millennialists back then. Anyway, in The City of God, that famous book he wrote, Augustine encourages readers to trust that Christ's death on the cross had won the ultimate victory, binding the restless Satan into submission God continues to build his church from among the nations, he proposed. Only at the very end of the millennial period would Satan temporarily have his way, and that time had not yet come, he said. Uh, Even if the Roman Empire were to perish, it did not mean the end of the world, and he lived during the time when it was sacked. This is not the end of the world, boys and girls. Let's keep doing it. Preaching the gospel. Jesus would still rule and reign in his churches, People should put their trust in God and not in the political empires. Forget about this eternal Rome, Pax Romana, Christian emperor, whole world turning Christian, uh, the physical manifestation of the reign of Christ in the Roman Empire. No, he couldn't stand that idea. As a result, Augustine understood the millennium to be synonymous with the age of the church and that the thousand years should be interpreted figuratively Ending at an unknown time, thus avoiding the temptation of the millennialists who are forever trying to fix dates for Jesus' return. City of God. Anyway, uh, history appeared to vindicate Augustine's views on this because the old Roman Empire did crumble. The barbarians over the centuries were born to Christ by the preaching of the gospel. It's kind of interesting. You read about the Goths that sacked Rome. They're the ones that actually preserved Roman culture and uh, accepted the gospel and promoted, promoted the gospel. So the Roman culture wasn't eliminated. These people bought into it and bought into Christianity and eventually became uh, Christians, at least in some form. <coughs> and Christ continued to build his church. It wasn't over when Rome fell. Uh, this demonstrated that despite the efforts of Satan, he was still bound and his power was limited. So, here's the question How should Christians view their relationship to political empires within the context of the expectation of Christ's return? Well, Augustine's solution in the City of God was to take a long haul approach to building God's kingdom. Uh, Christ may come at any time, but until then, the church was to go keep working. Christians may participate in the political realm, but they should also be wary of associating any political regime with the kingdom of God itself. Name any political regime in history. You can't equate that with the kingdom of God, like they did with the Roman Empire. I wonder if that was partly why God had the Roman Empire. God creates nations. He sets their boundaries in time. So, how convincing was Augustine to his contemporaries with this view that we were living in the millennium right now? The church was living in the millennium. Jesus could come at any time, get to busy, and preach the gospel. Um, well, he had a debate with this famous bishop, um, Dalmatian. It was about 10, 10, 12 years before he died. Um, about a decade after Rome's sack, and he remained intense. Uh, and remained intensely apocalyptic in their reading of contemporary history. So, some bishops believed that their vocation was to nourish their flocks with apocalyptic fervor and view the collapse of the Roman Empire as just an apocalyptic event. So, Augustine wasn't as influential as, mean may have been more influential than Noah. Noah preached for, what, 120 years? Couldn't convince anybody. <laughs> Uh, he convinced, I think, the church leadership, but there's a lot of people who didn't convince, including some of the bishops. <laughs> so somebody up, uh, came up with <coughs> Anno Monday uh, Two. You know, as Anno Monday One, the year 500 was approaching. Eventually, uh, Augustine uh, eventually supported this new idea of a Year of the World Two. Uh, Jesus' birth occurred not in 5500 year of the world, but in 5199, and that's the year 6000, when Christ's return would come in AD 801 instead of 500. So 801, that was not quite 400 years after the death of Augustine. So what a relief. You know, you put that off. We don't have to worry about setting dates and people taking their flocks out in the desert and embarrassing the cause of Christ, etc. That's a long ways off, way past our lifetime. So he could use this to refute the apocalyptic significance of Rome's fall, and like his Tyconian reading of Revelation, Augustine's acceptance of the new non-apocalyptic chronology of A.M. two dominated the writing of theologians. So we put it off to 801. First it was 500, now it's 801. The belief in historic premillennialism. eventually faded in the official church teaching, and Augustine's amillennial interpretation became dominant. Uh, for the most part, in the minds of Western Christians, until about the 17th century, when Protestant thinkers rethought the meaning of the millennium. Um, and to this day, the Catholic Church, officially, is a millennial; They follow Augustine's teachings, <coughs> which is interesting. And there's a lot of other churches and do the same thing. Uh, he said until the 17th century, that's the 1600s. Well, Luther was around 1500. But you know, ideas and thinking about stuff, it takes a long time to simmer and eventually come forward in actual writings, et cetera, et cetera. So after Luther, you know, uh, it, it took a while before ideas could be written down and kind of fleshed out. And we're, we'll look at that, some of that, uh, I think next week or the week after. Anyway, it was not until the 19th century, the 1800s, that uh, the birth of dispensationalism, with its emphasis on God's future, uh, proposes for national or purposes for national ethnic Israel and the founding of the modern nation state of Israel in 1948, that premillennialism once again flourished within the thinking of the evangelical church. Not the Catholic church, but the evangelical church. And the Baptists and most non-denominational evangelical (laughs) churches today uh, promote the dispensational premillennialism. The Catholics, uh, for the most part, the Methodists, Lutherans, the, the mainline denominations uh, the Amish, the disciples of Christ, the Christian Church, and for the most part, the Churches of Christ, believe the same as the Catholics in an a And where did that originate? Well, way back to some of the early church fathers like Clement and Origen, but Augustine was the one that would, you know, be able to put it down in writing, and Makes, makes me wonder, you know, where do some of my beliefs come from? Have I researched and studied everything that I believe right from the get-go and followed all the way up to this point in my life, you know, at age 47? Uh, or do I rely on teachers that have learned from other teachers, that have learned from other teachers all the way back? Uh, you know, where do my beliefs come from? Well, I say most people never have an original thought in their life. There's a few people that do. Maybe Augustine did. You know, they're real great thinkers. Einstein, (laughs) Elon Musk, or somebody like that. But I probably haven't. Um, So, comments. Last week we had great comments, and it got me into rearranging what I was going to... Present these next few weeks, thanks to Kathy and Larry. So, never know. <laughs> and my, I told you last week, my goal wasn't to promote a specific view of millennialism or not promote a specific view. Honestly, I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, I, I have some think sos. But uh, my goal is not to go through Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter seven and Revelation and calculate the number of weeks here and these 70 times this and blah, blah, blah and figure out and that's been done a million times by be- people a lot smarter than me. And they're all different from each other. It's kind of like Richard Gildenwater told me one day, he said, if you get six rabbis in a room, you're gonna end up with at least eight different opinions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, any any comments, Tim?
1: So you mentioned how um, during the Roman times that there was kind of a marrying between the uh, the Roman political system and the church. Yeah. And so, the question is in our modern American Christendom.
0: Are we tending towards the thing? Biden ahead of our church meeting? <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that out. No. <laughs> yes, I, I sometimes when I was researching this and saw what they were doing, I, I try to equate it to what's happening. So one of my passions is current events. I don't care about local news, but national international news. I spend two or three hours every day. Just reading everything I can. Most of them conservative websites. I don't watch any news on TV, but I, I thought the same thing. To what extent do we do that today, or, or is there any attempt to do that today? Or maybe not even in the United States, some other nation, like the nation of Israel or something. I don't know.
1: There seems to be a, a conjoining a lot of between America and Christianity.
0: Yeah, and, yeah, and unfortunately, every day I read articles about back in 1988 this percentage of Americans believed in God and went to church, and now today, it's, it's gone way down, you know. it's. Uh, and we, we see it in our lives, the lack of respect for the Bible, the lack of belief in God, well, you know, and, uh, we constantly have to be the lookout in our own lives that we're not adapting some of the terrible things in, in our culture, you know, being exposed to that. That's a good question. Since you're an elder, I expect you to be able to tell me <laughs> what the answer is, because <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Larry. What about the Holy Roman Empire that was in relation the, the Catholic political
1: domination of Europe? Millennial beliefs. (coughs) Stay tuned for next week. (laughs) Can you come back next week? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's uh, it's interesting. We've got a lot of American indigenous uh, movements (coughs) centered around millennialism, like uh, Seventh Day Adventists. Mm Advent was their belief that Christ would return in eighteen thirty something and uh, millennial or, uh, Millerites, they were called, donned white robes and waited for the, on that day for the second coming of Christ. Yeah. Later they said it was invisible, if they came invisibly. Yeah, yeah. But then, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, founded by Charles T. Russell, believed that Christ would return in 1925. I have a book that he wrote um where he, they don't uh, acknowledge that it exists but I've got a copy of it. yeah where uh he says all right Christ will return in 1925 Abraham Isaac and Jacob and all the patriarchs will be resurrected and God's will will millennium it says yeah
0: Yeah, it's it's been that way since the early church, as we can see. The Montanists were the or the many other groups, but the Montanist, Elvationists, Galatians, the Christian they all have had many bishops in their flock and you know, would set a date and expect Christ's return and it never happened, which eventually embarrassed the church. And yeah, of course all these people were anti authoritarian, anti authoritarian type people. We don't have to believe anything the church says the government after all Christ is going to return tomorrow You know we're, we're very accountable to him uh, but yeah I mean if you go out and search that kind of stuff there's hundreds of, and we'll see in the next two weeks as we go through the, the middle ages and the reformation and after that hundreds and hundreds of groups of different people that came up with the same thing Christ is going to return and they always <laughs> equate their uh, the their historical events in their lifetime to, like, you know, God and Magog God and all the other things. Uh,
1: it, it's been a plague on the Christian Church because
0: you know, if you make statements like that and that it doesn't happen, you're a stock, right? That's, that's one thing Augustine just despised because uh, it was, it was tarnishing the proclamation of the gospel. That was the most important thing to him.
1: of making disciples of all nations.